Will you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, this morning? Matthew 25. The tragic events that we've experienced in our church family this past week have been shocking to us all, and together we mourn the loss of one of our own little ones. We grieve over the circumstances surrounding her death, and to be sure, this tragedy has caused us all to hug our children a little tighter. It has caused us to come to a place of even deeper gratitude for God's grace in our life. And I'm sure for most of us, it has fanned the flames of hatred that we have for sin and for Satan, the diabolical enemy of our souls. So what must we do when the unspeakable happens? What must we do when our hearts are stricken with grief and our souls are, are weighed down with anguish, with a burden that we're unable to bear? Folks, the answer is as profound as it is simple. We must look to Jesus. We must gaze upon the sheer majesty of his glory and cling to the promises of his grace. And with renewed determination, as we've been studying in Hebrews, we must lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easy, easily entangles us. We must, with renewed vigor, run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We must consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. Oh, child of God, in the midst of great sorrow, we must look beyond the inevitable sadness of this fallen world and look to the one who has purchased us with his very blood, fix our mind on the certain promises of our coming king and the undeserved inheritance that will be ours. As Paul says in Colossians 3, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And I'm so thankful that so many of you understand these great truths. In fact, I find it interesting in response to the, the loss this week, I found many of you saying to me or writing to me a concluding statement saying, Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And that's the right focus. Now, I must say, as a pastor, I'm not nearly as shocked with the kind of tragedy that we've experienced this week as perhaps most of you having been in ministry for 30 years, 
I've dealt with the unspeakable and the unbelievable so many times. It's not that I've grown numb to it, but it doesn't surprise me. I'm privy to secrets that you would not believe were I to tell you. So, I live in a world that's much darker than yours. But I want you to understand that even though that is the case, my joy is not diminished. In fact, it is increased. And it's for this reason. All of these things drive me to Christ. I have no place else to go, nor do you. It drives me to Christ, who is my life, my greatest joy, my soul's delight. And I've learned that the only way to survive the darkness is to stay focused on the light. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ that God has caused to shine in my heart and in your heart, as Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. So as we come together this Sunday morning, I believe the Spirit of God would have me draw your attention to the ineffable grandeur of the glory of God in the face of Christ, especially as it relates to his second coming. This week I sought the Lord in prayer, asking him to direct my heart and mind so I could know what to say to you, to encourage you. What do you say to a church that is in shock and in mourning on a Sunday that has been set aside to celebrate Thanksgiving? And the answer came to me, as the Spirit often does, in ways that I can't fully explain. Basically, the answer is this. Give to them the thing that nourishes your soul in times such as this. Namely, remind them of the thrilling anticipation of your Savior and your King who is coming again in great glory. And so to that end, I bring you to Matthew chapter 25. This is part of our Lord's great Olivet Discourse. It begins in chapter 24. It contains some of the most profound, clear, and compelling prophetic revelation in all of Scripture. And in light of this text, I've entitled my discourse to you this morning, The Glorious Return of our conquering king. Let me read the text to you. Jesus speaking, beginning in verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another. As the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? 
And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked, and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I always get lost in the wonder of our Lord's second coming. To think of seeing Jesus finally. Don't you long to see him? Oh, how many times I will tell him, Lord, I I just wish I could just see you. Well, that day's coming. But this is a scene that is beyond imagination. All else pales into utter insignificance when you think of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing in history can possibly compare to the physical return to earth of the King of Kings. When his patience has reached its limits, when all of the mockers and scoffers on earth have caused his nostrils to flare with a holy and righteous indignation, he is going to rise from his throne. And he will come again in power and great glory to judge the wicked and to establish his long-promised earthly kingdom upon this earth, which will be the consummating bridge between human history and the eternal state. According to Isaiah 9 and verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And beloved, I would submit to you that this is a radically different Jesus than the smiley-faced Jesus that is portrayed in evangelicalism in so many places today, a Jesus that just kind of winks at sin, that giggles at our mistakes, that oozes with with sentimental love and tolerance for every imaginable sin and theological perversion. This is very different from the malleable Jesus of the prosperity gospel that that can be manipulated and even cajoled to somehow give us what we want. Indeed, this is even different than the meek and the lowly Jesus that we think about that first came and was in a manger. No, at his second coming, the days of grace and mercy will be over, as well as the days of all of the demeaning ridicule and mocking and scoffing. 
Now, this should be no surprise to any student of Scripture. As we look into the Word of God, we know that after the fall of man in the garden, according to Genesis 3.15, a deliverer was promised, a, a, a Savior that would descend from the seed of Eve, that would one day come and defeat the serpent and all who belong to him. And according to Genesis 5, we know that Adam lived 930 years, think of that, to live 930 years to watch the ravages of sin do its damage in the world. One of his descendants was Enoch. And we know according to scripture that when Enoch came along, Adam was still alive. Enoch was the seventh generation of Adam. And Enoch would have had firsthand a first-hand account of creation, a first-hand account of the garden of Cain and Abel. And he would have passed all of that on to his son, Methuselah, who passed it on to Noah. In fact, Methuselah overlapped Adam by 200 years. And Noah for 600 years. And therefore, there would, there would be one man that bridges human history from Adam all the way to Noah. Noah overlapped Shem for 400 years, and, and Adam died before Shem, so Shem could have told Abraham a firsthand account of what happened at the flood. In fact, Shem was even alive through Isaac and Jacob. My point with this little historical reminder is that all of these men knew about sin and judgment. For hundreds of years, they witnessed the metastasizing corruption of sin and all of the devastation that it brings upon mankind. They saw God's judgment in the flood. They saw it in the fire and the brimstone that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And all of them anticipated a coming deliverer. In fact, Enoch, the man who, according to Genesis 5:24 walked with God, and he was not, for God took him, which I believe is a beautiful picture of the rapture of the church. We learned that with Enoch, he was looking for this redeemer, this deliverer. We read of this, for example, in Jude, verses 14 and 15, where we have recorded a prophecy from Enoch's lips concerning this coming deliverer, there we read, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And beloved, it is in this long line of anticipated judgment that Jesus describes in these closing words to his disciples in his Olivet Discourse. In fact, Jesus spoke on judgment more than any other in all of Scripture. And although he is merciful and long-suffering and is patient toward you, Peter says, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, although he came to seek and to save the lost, and although he, his life was a ransom for sinners. He came to redeem sinners worthy only of his wrath. We know that there 
is no limit to his invitation of forgiveness, but yet there is a day that is coming when he will execute, execute judgment upon the wicked. So as we look at this text a bit briefly in an overview, I want to examine three things. First of all, we're going to see the majestic spectacle of the king enthroned. Secondly, we're going to examine the glorious inheritance of the king's loyal subjects. And finally, the condemnation and execution of the king's rebellious enemies. So first, let's look at this majestic spectacle of the king enthroned. Notice verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, it's interesting, this scene is not found in any of the other Gospels. The emphasis we know throughout Matthew's Gospel is on the sovereign king. Thus, more than any other Matthew's gospel is replete with revelation concerning the coming Messiah King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, folks, can you imagine a more majestic, awesome spectacle than this? The Lord Jesus Christ descending to earth in his pre-incarnate glory. And to make it even more magnificent, we see that that he is attended by the heavenly hosts, of his holy angels, this is just an indescribable sight, something the world has never seen, a scene that would cause saints to weep with joy and sinners to melt in terror. Now remember the context here. Jesus has been speaking to his disciples concerning the signs that are going to lead up to his return. They're asking about this. He's been speaking to them about the importance of spiritual readiness and and even the kind of service that will take place during the time of the tribulation. And now he concludes with this magnificent scene of, of unrivaled glory and sobering judgment. Now I want you to notice, it says the Son of Man comes in his glory. Think about this. The days of obscurity and humility are over. The meek and gentle Savior does not return as a lamb that opens not his mouth, but he returns as the Lion of Judah, the King of Kings. And God spoke through Jeremiah prophecies concerning both immediate and future judgment. And he says this in Jeremiah 25, beginning in verse 30, The Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation, He will roar mightily against his fold. He will shout like those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. A clamor has come to the end of the earth because the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh. As for the wicked, he has given them to the sword, declares the Lord. Then in verse 38, he has left his hiding place like the lion, for their land has become a horror because of the fierceness of the oppressing sword and because of his fierce anger. The Apostle Paul speaks of this as well in 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 7. There we read that the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, 
dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, Jesus has already told them when this is going to occur in chapter 24, beginning in verse 29. He says, immediately after the tribulation, the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory and he will send forth his angels. Imagine the day, dear friends, according to biblical prophecy, we see that this will be a day when the planet has been devastated by God's judgment. The judgments that are revealed in Revelation chapter 6 through 19 tell us that the majority of the earth's inhabitants will be destroyed by this time. And both the saved and the unsaved who have survived the Holocaust will suddenly see the lights of heaven turned out. There will be a violent shaking and then the unthinkable will happen. The Lord Jesus Christ, who has been mocked and ridiculed all these years, is going to appear in inexpressible glory, along with his angels and even along with his church. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. This, by the way, includes all of the Old Testament saints, all of those who have died during the church age, the raptured saints, and all those martyred during the tribulation up to this point. According to Zechariah chapter 14, beginning in verse 4, We see that the Lord Jesus is going to descend upon the Mount of Olives, the very place where the angel announced his ascension. And we read that the mount will be split in its middles from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will be moved toward, or half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. We read here and in other passages that the Lord is going to radically alter the topography of Jerusalem. He is going to make it suitable for his holy and glorious inhabitants. And then in Zechariah 14.5, he goes on to say, Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him, and it will come about in that day that there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. Beloved, think about this. On that coming day of judgment, no one is going to be able to ignore him, right? No one is going to miss him this time. Because the glory of the Lord will be the only source of illumination. Inconceivable. And you might wonder, well, what will happen to all those who hate Israel? We read about it in Zechariah 14, verse 12. The Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will dissolve while they stand on their feet. 
Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. And the Lord even reveals more of this to us in his revelation in chapter 6, verse 15. There he describes the reaction of all of the Christ mockers. He says, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? As we look at Scripture, we see that because of the cataclysmic upheaval on the Mount of Olives, a new valley will be formed. It's called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, or the Valley of Decision, where the king will judge the nations. And God speaks through the prophet Joel describing this unimaginable event when the warrior king returns in Joel chapter 3 beginning in verse 12 the prophet says this let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat by the way that means Jehovah judges Jehoshaphat for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe Referring to a harvest of judgments. Come, tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. And in verse 15, he went on to say, The sun and the moon will grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. And the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. Now, if we go back to Matthew chapter 25, verse 32, when the king is enthroned in all of his glory, we see that all the nations will be gathered before him. Isn't this interesting? This is his first act as king to separate the sheep from the goats, the saved from the lost. Folks, there are only two kinds of people in the world. One, those who know and love the truth and therefore are united to Christ by grace alone through faith alone. And then there are those who are deceived and who hate the truth. And here Jesus describes them as the sheep and the goats. The the metaphorical imagery is important here. You must understand that that shepherds have to separate sheep from goats in their herds. While sheep are unbelievably stupid, they are at least easily herded. They're mild-mannered animals. The goats are not that way. They are hard to deal with, harder to manage, and they cause great conflict among the sheep, so they have to be separated. And this is the picture Jesus uses to describe the pre-kingdom judgment. You see, in that day of, of great divine discrimination, it's not going to matter what denomination a person belonged to. It's not going to matter what their social status is or what their political affiliation might be. All of those things are utterly insignificant. It will not matter, matter whether you are a, a peasant or a prince. 
It will not matter if you are a king or a slave, whether you're rich or poor. All that will matter is the object of your faith. It will either be the Lord Jesus Christ, and if so, those will be the sheep on his right. Anything else will be the goats on the left. The the coming king has no tolerance for anyone who denies that he alone is the savior of sinners. You see, the... The Lord of hosts is utterly unconcerned about ridiculous things like political correctness or being religiously tolerant. All that will matter, all that will determine the eternal destiny of men's souls is what they did with Jesus. And of course, that genuine saving faith will be proven by their works. So first, we see our Savior and King enthroned in majesty, appearing in his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. He, he will reveal himself in the glorious perfections of his deity. Glories only slightly revealed, you will recall, when he was here on earth. For example, at the Mount of Transfiguration. But now they are going to be fully disclosed. And in his first act as earthly king, he is going to separate those who may and may not enter his kingdom. And you must remember that the Father has given the Son authority to do just that. As Jesus has earlier stated in John 5, verse 22, not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Well, secondly, the Lord Jesus describes the glorious inheritance of the king's loyal subjects. Remember again in verse 32, he speaks of all the nations, the ethna, the the, the peoples, all of them are going to be gathered before him, all who have uh, survived the horrors of the tribulation up to that point, both the saved and the unsaved. They're going to stand before him in the, the valley of decision. And first... He describes those that he places on his right, which, by the way, was the, the customary Jewish position of those who would receive the Father's blessing. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I want you to notice that admission to the kingdom has nothing to do with personal merit. Will you notice that it has nothing to do with human achievement? It has nothing to do with individual self-righteousness. It has everything to do with a sovereign God who has administered his grace. Those who are blessed of my Father. And we know in the inscrutable mysteries of God that he chose whom he would save before time began. We read about this in so many passages. Second Timothy 1.9, he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. In other words, our inheritance was prepared from the foundation of the world. And such an amazing doctrine of sovereign election. And this should drench all of us with utmost humility. We share in none of the glory. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, we read, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation 
Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Romans 8.29, whom he foreknew, which means foreloved with, with an intimate affection, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son and so forth. Now I want you to notice he addresses the saints on his right who will be granted entrance now into the millennial kingdom. He says this in verse 35, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. It's fascinating here that Jesus underscores a truth that is often neglected in our evangelical circles when we start talking about a Christian. And that truth is simply this. Faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. James 2, verses 15 and 17. Now bear in mind, works do not earn salvation, they prove it. Many people claim to be a Christian, and yet they turn a deaf ear to those who are in need. And certainly that betrays an attitude that is inconsistent with genuine saving faith. Now, certainly the persecuted saints during the time of the tribulation will have to depend upon one another to survive. And that's the context here. So Jesus praises their self-sacrificing love, which is, again, another evidence of genuine saving faith. And then with self-effacing humility, they they will say to their king, who has condescended so low to take note of them, they will say in verse 37 and following, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we do all of these things? It's, it's as though they are, they are blushing in disbelief at the Lord's notice of, of their humble acts of kindness. And they're, they're just incredulous with, with the Lord's appraisal of them because such patterns of selfless love are, are frankly natural to genuine believers. In verse 40, the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. I want you to notice the intimacy of the king towards his loyal subjects. He calls them brothers of mine. Isn't that precious? You see, when we demonstrate the sacrificial love of Christ towards other believers... We manifest our love towards the Savior. Think about it. If someone does something precious for one of your children, we perceive it to be a profound act of love towards us, right? That's the idea. So Jesus makes it clear that these on his right, the sheep, will be the ones who are blessed by the Father and who will, according to verse 34, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then finally, the Lord speaks of the condemnation and the execution of the king's rebellious enemies. Notice in verse 41, And he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Isn't it interesting that Jesus here does not list extreme sins of diabolical wickedness that they had committed? And we know from other passages that these people committed 
murder and rape and gross sexual immorality and idolatry and all kinds of things. Rather, he simply exposes their utter indifference towards his family, towards genuine believers. Their utter indifference towards just simple acts of compassion and benevolence towards those who are suffering because they named the name of Christ. We see this all the time today, don't we? And it's mounting. From the ACLU to the biased media, you know, anything that smacks of Christianity is a, is a target for hate and discrimination at worst. Disdain and indifference at best. And how much worse will it be during the Holocaust of the pre-kingdom judgments, the time of the tribulation? Certain indication that people have no love for Christ. And for this reason, verse 41, he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. What an unimaginable scene of divine justice for those who reject him to think that they will be executed on the spot. Instantly they will be thrown into the eternal Inferno, the very place that has been prepared for the devil, they served. Some of them served him knowingly, many of them unwittingly. This is a place of infinite suffering for sin, unimaginable. All because they would not bow the knee of their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Because of their lack of faith in and love for Christ, Their souls will instantly be placed into the abyss of torment, torment, and there they will remain for a thousand years. And according to Jesus' words in John 5, verses 28 and 29, after that thousand years, their bodies will be resurrected and united with their eternally cursed souls then fashioned into an indestructible body designed to withstand the eternal torments of hell. Scripture is clear, dear friends. Hell is a very real place of eternal torment, just as heaven is a very real place of eternal bliss. And even as the righteousness of Christ is eternal, so too the unrighteousness of man is eternal. Heaven is a place of endless fellowship and light, and hell a place of endless isolation and night. It is beyond language, it is beyond imagination when we think of the miseries of hell. I find that I'm incapable of going there in my own mind. But also I'm unable to describe the glories of heaven. Hell is a place of eternal suffering, no friendship, no consolation infinite rage and blasphemies towards God will be all that is uttered from the lips of those that are there. Verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. J.C. Ryle, great English expositor of yesteryear, wrote this. Let believers think of this and take comfort. 
He that sits upon the throne in that great and dreadful day will be their savior, their shepherd, their high priest, their elder brother, their friend. When they see him, they will have no cause to be alarmed. But he went on to say this, let unconverted people think of this and be afraid. Their judge will be that very Christ whose gospel they now despise and whose gracious invitations they refuse to hear. How great will be their confusion at last if they go on in unbelief and die in their sins. To be condemned in the day of judgment by anyone would be dreadful, but to be condemned by him who would have saved them will be dreadful indeed. Well may the psalmist say, kiss the son lest he be angry. Dear friends, eternal hell is hard for many to understand, especially in these days of apostasy where God has been redefined as kind of almost a Santa Claus figure that is there to meet our expectations. And when God is described, all people want to talk about is the attribute of his love, which is infinite and unspeakable. But they don't want to talk about his holiness. And may I remind you that holiness is the all-encompassing attribute of God. It portrays his consummate perfection and his eternal glory. It stands alone as the defining characteristic of his person. You might say that it is the summation of all of his attributes. Now, no one can possibly fathom the love of God apart from first being humbled by the holiness of God and trembling at the inevitability of his wrath upon those who reject him, who reject his son, and who have rebelled against him, which includes all of us. And because of God's holy justice, his anger is kindled against sinners. His holy law has been violated, and sin cannot go unpunished. His wrath must be appeased. It must be satisfied. It must be placated. And what's fascinating fascinating is that God himself provided a way to appease his own wrath. This is an amazing paradox, dear friends. And don't miss it. Herein is the love of God. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction for our sins. It's amazing, isn't it, to think that God had to provide his own substitute, one who was a man to die for men, and one who was God to be the perfect And the spotless Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, dear friends, we either seize the gift of divine grace through faith alone and understand that only Christ could satisfy the justice of God and not ourselves, or we must attempt to be our own propitiation. We must attempt on our own to somehow satisfy the just wrath of a holy God. These are the only two remedies. 
But I might add that God cannot exchange his wrath for love unless his justice has been propitiated. And yet, because of his infinite love, God has provided his son as a means of placating his own wrath. Folks, that's the essence of the gospel. Therein is where we place our faith. But such mercy could never be offered apart from propitiation. Apart from Christ, the only appeasement for divine wrath would be the sinner's eternal damnation. That's the bad news that helps you appreciate the good news of the gospel. Well, in conclusion, in this final section of our Lord's prophetic discourse, we see the stark reality that awaits all who refuse his gift of grace. We know, according to other passages, that the sheep now will will enter into the millennial kingdom. Only believers will enter in. They will enter in and in human bodies, there will be a renovated earth at this point. It will be returned to Edenic splendor. Christ will personally rule. We as saints will co-rule with him in glorified bodies. We will interact with others as Christ did in his glorified body after his resurrection. We know that Satan is going to be bound for that thousand years. He's going to be released At the very end of it, there will be one final rebellion. He will be utterly defeated, and all who are with him, he will be cast into the lake of fire. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24, then comes the end. When he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he, referring to Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. As we close, let me summarize this great truth for you. This is such an amazing thing. As we look at Scripture, we see that in eternity past, the Father ordained a plan to demonstrate His infinite love for His Son, whereby He chose for His Son a bride made up of undeserving sinners, sinners that He would save and transform by His grace. And He chose them by name, And he recorded their name in a book of life. These names make up the son's bride, an elect group of redeemed humanity, pledged to him as a gift of the father's love, a pledge that was sealed by the Holy Spirit. The father then intentionally drew unto himself this great company of sinners, convicting them of their sin, and regenerating them by the power of his spirit so that they would worship and glorify him. As we look at scripture, we see that the father chose them and drew them. And then the spirit convicted them and transformed them. 
And the Lord Jesus Christ purchased his very bride. And central to this whole predetermined plan of inter-Trinitarian love is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and his great atoning work on the cross. You see, he had to be the perfect substitute for sinners in order that we might be reconciled to a holy God. These are the ones to which Jesus refers to as those whom the Father has given me. And after the Son returns to this earth as the King of kings and Lord of lords, after he dethrones Satan and rules over his earthly kingdom for a thousand years, consistent with his promises to Abraham and to David, As we have just read, at that point, the Son will give back to the Father all that the Father had given him as a reciprocal expression of his love. When he, Christ, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. Oh, dear Christian, let these great truths ignite your soul in praise. No matter how difficult and confusing how painful life can get. Be assured of this. God is in control. He has a plan. He is working his plan. And neither man nor devil can thwart it. He has a plan to bring glory to himself. A plan that includes the glorification of those that he has saved by his grace. And even a plan that includes the condemnation of those who refuse him. I pray that as you think about these coming realities, that it will ignite your heart to praise during this time of thanksgiving. We have so much to be thankful for, don't we? I just want to remind you of some of these great truths. Let's celebrate that in our hearts even today. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, thank you for revealing to us just a little glimpse of the glory that is to come. And I pray that as we pensively reflect upon these great prophetic truths, that indeed these things will ignite our hearts in praise and thanksgiving and cause us to look beyond the temporal and gaze into the eternal and find great comfort, yea, great excitement, knowing what awaits all of us that you have redeemed by the blood of your Son. For it's in his name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author, Dr. David Harrell. For more information or for other messages from Dr. Harrell, please visit the Olive Tree Christian Resources website at otcr.org.